to this edition of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and in this episode, we will be looking at the final doctrine of grace known as the perseverance of the saints. Well, before we get into that, I'd like to do a little housekeeping. As some of you know, I've recently published a book based on my review of David G. McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings. My book is entitled Measuring McAfee, Why One Atheist's Attempt to Disprove Christianity Misses the Mark. And it's now available on Amazon, Kindle, and CreateSpace. And it's going to soon be available wherever fine books are sold. So if you enjoyed the series on McAfee a while ago, please go and get your copy today. I'd like to give some special thanks as well to my good friend Nicholas Brzezzi, who's been on the show before, uh, who gave me the permission to include our article that we co-wrote dealing with McAfee's blog uh, about the secret gospel of Mark and whether or not Jesus approved or even engaged in homosexual activity. Yeah, I know. I'm in the real world also. <laughs> yeah, it's that bad. Uh, but that's that's all included in the book. Uh, so check it out. Uh, it's called Measuring McAfee. You can find it an, on Amazon, Kindle, and CreateSpace. Uh, feel free to head on over there uh, and to purchase your copy today. In addition to the book, please feel free to stop by the Freedthinker Patreon page or the donor page on Podbean and sign up to be a sponsor of the show. With your contributions, I'm able to dedicate a bit more time to the content and release of these episodes and to work on improving the production quality. Now, since this is the first show of 2016, I'd like to announce that we didn't quite reach the goal of the 24,000 hits in December that we're going for, but we did get just under 20,000, which is huge. That was still a big a big spike from the month before. So thank you to all again for your support, and hopefully this year we can crush that number together again. So please, if you like the show, share early and share often. Now, finally, I'd like to thank some fellow podcasters who either supported the show, had me on the guest as their show, or were just really some great helps with technical issues or discussions uh, in 2015. First is my really good friend Owen Pond over at Memento Mori for always helping me with tech issues and sending over great articles and thinking of great projects for us. We have some shows in the works that may be starting to come out in 2016 as well, so keep your ears peeled for that, and remember to check out the content over at Christus Victor Network. Oh, and speaking of the new shows, I'm going to be working on a new podcast dealing exclusively with the philosophical case for the pro-life position. Uh, It's going to be called Choose Life, uh, and that's likely going to be starting in 2016, again with my good friend Nicholas Brzezzi, so more details on that to come. Uh, I'd like to also thank Thomas Smith from Atheistically Speaking, who has had me on his show a couple of times this year, uh, talking about the importance of hermeneutics uh, and about abortion. And even though we don't see eye to eye 
on really much. Uh, the discussions have always been really lively, but also really cordial, and, and I've enjoyed them very much. So I'd like to thank uh, Thomas for having me on the show. Uh, he's he's also uh, kind of had an open invitation for any some future projects, uh, and I have an open invitation to try to get him on this show. Uh, so you might hear that as well in 2016. I'd also like to thank Nick Peters from the Deeper Waters podcast for coming on the show and for having me on as well. And I look forward to some future work with him uh, that we're in, in discussions on. Some other really supportive podcasters are the guys over at the Gospel Friends, who definitely bring some levity uh, to what could really be some heady issues. So if you haven't listened to the Gospel Friends, uh, dive on in there, uh, visit us, um, visit all of us. Uh, I don't know if irreverent, uh, but people who don't take ourselves quite so seriously, seriously uh, in the Hall of Dogma group. I've also appreciated getting uh, connected with Lynn Pettis from the Bible Thumping Wingnut this year, and it's been great sharing some some time discussing issues with him. Oh, man. Uh, who else? Um, oh, we have Rob Johnson over at Apologetics 105. Uh, he and I had a great time discussing some of the issues related to Calvinism and Molinism and free will and some of the issues related to that. So that was a really, really enjoyable time as well spread across uh, his and my show. Um, so 2015 was really an amazing year, and I had a lot of fun. And, I, and I'm looking forward to what is on the horizon for 2016. I already have some interviews on the books, so hopefully you enjoy what's coming down the pike. Well, with that said, let's dive headfirst down this pike and explore the final doctrine in the Doctrines of Grace. Enjoy the show. We now come to the final doctrine in our study of the Calvinistic system. We have been looking at these doctrines as if they're Russian nesting dolls. And at this point, we're cracking open the final layer. This is the final logical outcome of the system, and the one which carries possibly the most benefit for the believer's faith this side of heaven. Until this point, the doctrines have all dealt with what God has done before or at our conversion. We can't feel our election. We don't see our regeneration. We we didn't decide on the means for our atonement or that we would be included. And, and we're born totally depraved. Now, we've been utterly uninvolved in the doctrines thus far outside of our reactions uh, of praise for, for the methods that God brought us back into relationship with himself. We, we've seen that we start dead in our sins and we're unable to affect our own salvation, so God has to act. He did so by choosing those whom he would redeem before the foundations of the world and then provided the atonement needed to accomplish our redemption. This occurred at the death of Jesus on the cross, and God then irresistibly applies that redemption to us by regenerating us to, uh, to, to new life and the enlivening of our faith so that we can place our trust in Jesus, repent, and believe. Now, finally, the question is, if God chose someone from before the foundations of the world, atoned for them, that is, for all of their sins, and applied it to them at regeneration, can that person then be lost? The Reformed answer to this is a resounding no, that God keeps all who are his. And this is, again, is not by our doing. It is not that we persevere, but that God perseveres us. 
Uh, we're going to see uh, what that is here in a little bit. Now, while it would be incorrect to say that this final doctrine is not also entirely a work of God, it's one that we can observe, which we feel, and which we participate in, though not in the same manner that God does. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints can be more adequately called the preservation of the saints uh, due to the active role of God in preserving us, uh, thus causing us to persevere. Yet just as God does not effectually call us by eliminating our ability to will, neither does he preserve us apart from our will. As we'll see, God preserves us in and through our faith in order that we will persevere. This is not the same concept as eternal security or once saved, always saved either. So what are some of the things that people have said about the doctrine? How have they defined it? Well, Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology on page 546 says, quote, Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. The Westminster Confession, chapter 17, section 1, says, quote, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Wayne Grudem, in his book Systematic Theology on page 788, says, quote, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. End quote. Now, <clears throat> for many people, the thought that a believer can lose their salvation and be utterly cast into hell is one of their deepest concerns. I mean, it keeps them up at night. It seems that our inability to completely do away with sin can so entangle some that they begin to worry why they have not received the victory over sin altogether, which they hear promised from their pulpits. Indeed, those who hold to the Armenian system will undoubtedly reinforce this feeling by their explicit approval of the ability of, for some to lose their salvation if they fall away from the faith, even though they may not go so far as to say, uh, you know, our day-to-day -day sins are the cause. Now, we've hammered, we've, we're, we're hammered by passages that seem to indicate that if we sin— we're not born again, that the spirit can have nothing to do with the flesh, and that some may have, in fact, apostatized in the pages of Scripture. Well, is that the case? Do we see people lose their salvation in the Bible? Well, as we'll see here in a moment, these passages are not really as strong as some would claim them to be. In fact, we'll see that they are quite vague and should be interpreted by the abundant, clear passages that explicitly state that once someone has been elected— God will see it through to glorification, and there's nothing that can disrupt this eternal decree of God. In hermeneutics, this is called the analogy or the rule of faith, where we interpret the less clear passages in light of the clearer passages. This keeps us from developing bizarre doctrines based on one obscure text and then reading it back into and distorting the majority texts on those same issues. So let us begin by first exploring several of the passages that explicitly affirm the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. The first one is John 10, 27 to 28, which says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give, them li I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This passage is one of the clearest passages on the topic. We, we see here that the flock of Christ, which hears his voice and follows him, it should be noted that this is this flock is the same flock which Jesus laid down his life for explicitly just a few verses earlier in verse 15, which we looked at in the section on the atonement. These are the saints who were given to Christ by God in unconditional election, who alone Christ died for in particular redemption, and who Christ gives eternal life to via irresistible grace at regeneration. And now we finally see that the elect will never perish and no one can snatch them from the hand of God. This is about as clear a passage as could be hoped for to support really any doctrine. Yet even though this verse is entirely compelling in the English translation, the Greek is much more emphatic. While in English double negations are to be avoided, they're, they're pretty acceptable in Greek. So in English our versions may say that they will never perish. This translates the Greek ume plus the subjunctive verb, which would be better translated, they will never, I repeat, will never, ever perish. Or, in the common vernacular of the South, it ain't never gonna happen. Uh, we've all seen movies where the young man is, is, is training to be a master of the martial arts and he, and he you know, finally snatches the stone from his master's hand. Well, here in this case, this is not a possible outcome. No one can snatch us from the hands of the omnipotent God, and we can't roll off either. Uh, while this is going to be addressed in later objections, it has to be stated here that some Arminians will agree that no one can snatch us from God's hands, but they'll want to say that we can remove ourselves from God's hands. Well, this is a pretty precarious interpretation of the term no one, uh, which is a universal category and involves all humanity, including ourselves. This is a clear passage that once we're elected by God and placed in the loving hands of the good shepherd, we can never fall away. He is the shepherd who will not lose a single sheep, even the ones prone to wander. If they are his sheep, they will always be his sheep. What about Romans 6.23? Uh, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then following that, Romans 11.29, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now we want to look at this as a kind of syllogism. Firstly, I fully recognize that neither of these passages are directly talking about perseverance, but they are telling us something important about what salvation is as a gift and what kinds of gifts God gives. We can see that when we pair these verses together that they make a really simple syllogism that is almost impossible to deny because really the explicit nature of the two statements. We can see and formulate the logical syllogism as follows. Premise one, eternal life by Christ Jesus our Lord is God's free gift, Romans 6.23. Premise two, God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. Romans 11.29, therefore, the gift of eternal life is irrevocable. Now, that argument couldn't even really be simpler. I mean, in fact, this is one of the major points that Paul is attempting to drive home in Romans 9.11, that God's promises are never taken back. It may seem that God has taken back his promise for Israel, but Paul shows that Israel had simply took what was a promise to really 
the remnant, the Israel within Israel, and applied it to the entire nation as an, as an ethnicity. Thus, the promises stand as they always had. Here, too, the promises of God for salvation to his elect are irrevocable. And since we are not responsible for, responsible for who is elect and who is not elect, it's God's choice from before creation, we are incapable to make the same category confusion as the Israelites were capable of. We'll also look here at Romans 8, 29 to 30, which says, For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Once again, we come to this familiar passage. This is the golden chain of justification. If you have kept up with your previous episodes that we've been talking through these issues, you should be able to probably state this argument from memory already. We know that in each move, the entire populace in one link, the entire group in the previous category is carried over. There, there's no one who's left out from group to group. So, so the elect, those that God foreknew, who are present in the initial predestination will still be there in their entirety when we reach the final step of glorification. In fact, Paul is so assured of this that he can speak of our glorification as if it's already being something that we possess now. There are none that are lost along the way, is his point. Another verse that we've looked at before, but we'll look at here, is Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Here we see that once we believe in the gospel of our salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit, which is called a seal um, uh, or, or a pledge or a guarantee. Um, the, the, the word there is, is really should be translated as, as guarantee. The Spirit is given to us as a down payment that guarantees our entrance into eternal life. It, it's the ticket in. The Spirit is the first installment of the realization of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. It's the promise of future payment. God's saying that he himself is the deposit, the guarantee, who will ensure the completion of the process for his own glory, remember. He holds on to it until we die or Jesus returns, at which time we acquire possession of it. This final outcome is assured. Paul doesn't say, quote, you know, something like, if we acquire possession of it, contingent on how we live. But rather, he states the plain, all-out truth of the matter. And why can he do that? Because we are God's own possession. He will keep what is his. He will not lose a single sheep. Remember that part of the point, that, that's part of the point of these doctrines, is to remind the Christian of their assurance of salvation. What does this tell the Christian who is struggling with their faith or the person, the Christian who is fearful of the judgment of God? That they matter so much to God that he will see them through to the end. He will see them through. To not fear, to not be afraid. 
Uh, this is kind of a throwback to one of my previous episodes, but but sorry, Tracy Harris and, and Matt Dillahunty and the Thinking Atheist and Aaron Ra. It's not staying up late night, fear, 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 God's going to get you, you better behave. Christians are not meant to be ruled by fear. We're not afraid of God. We're not living in terror at all times. Does that mean we're not we're not uh, uh, you know fearful of the just punishment of our sins and 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 result in repentance? No, of course we we repent, but we know that God is loving. We know that our sins have been forgiven. We act in accordance with His will because we've been forgiven. Philippians one six also says, quote, "For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus." Now, this is a common verse used to support the doctrine, and for good reason. The explanation is simple because the verse is so obvious. God, who began the good work in us, will finish that very work. The work of salvation from beginning to end is one continuous work of God, and thus it is certain to be completed. Nothing can thwart the plan and the decrees of God or interfere with his sovereignty to save the elect. We will not be the ones who finish it. God has accomplished it. God has paid the deposit. God is the shepherd. God is the one who ensures that no sheep will be lost. What about 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5? 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade, reserved in you for heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This passage, again, is so clear that really little should be needed to add uh, to, to really explain it. Not only is the inheritance clearly something that cannot be lost or decayed, it's, it's incorruptible and unfading, but also the heir is protected by God. The inheritance is kept in heaven for us, and we ourselves are guarded by God's power through our faith. We're told that we are guarded by the power of God. Here, the word guarded is fureo, which means uh, protected from attack, but it can also mean kept from escaping. Now, really, we use the word guard in both meanings in English as well. Imagine that there's an international criminal who is both bent on escape and in danger of assassination. His guard doesn't perform one side of his task and not the other. He not only guards from outward attacks, but he also guards from escape. Now, while we shouldn't think that the Christian is, you know, hell-bent on escape from the sovereign grace of God, we should at the very least recognize that God would not allow it even if we tried, which we wouldn't because we've been enlivened by the Holy Spirit and regenerated. Now, this faith is not the faith which so easily comes and goes in our daily lives. We're not here talking about conviction or sincerity. But the faith unto salvation, which itself was a gift of God to us at our regeneration, it is impossible to conceive of anything that could undo this redemptive work of God in regeneration as well, uh, which we'll see shortly. While there are many other passages that address this subject, it appears to me that the weight of these passages is so strong that there are not many others that could be used 
to make a scriptural case any stronger than, than it already is. Yet, like the others, this doctrine also has much weight given to it from the inferences that it makes or the false inferences that it rejects. So, so here, let's start looking at some of the inferential arguments for our perseverance. The first one is that election guarantees perseverance. We've kind of touched on this already. We have to remember that election does not mean that God chose us to show us kindness uh, in, in a special way in an attempt to woo us uh, so that we may believe, but rather it's an election unto salvation. God chose us in order to atone for us so that he can regenerate us and redeem us. It would be a travesty to the doctrine of sovereignty of God to say that God elects us, regenerates us, and redeems us simply to let us fall away, uh, fall fall to the wayside because of our own sins. If a person holds to that position, they're in contradiction to the clear teaching of Paul in Romans 8.30, which shows that no one drops off between each step of salvation and that golden chain of redemption. The next argument would be that the covenant of redemption guarantees perseverance. Now, this is going to be notably brief, um, but theologian Louis Burkhoff makes this case that in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son in eternity past, in which God gave his people to his Son as a reward for the Son's obedience and death, the Father made a promise to the Son. And if the outcome of that promise does not come about, then the Father would be a liar a position that is completely unthinkable to any student of Scripture. Although this argument is really recognizably limited to those who ascribe to the theological covenants adhered to in covenant theology, which I do, and therefore it seems a powerful one to me and to those who would hold to that covenant system. Now, another argument would be that the priesthood of Christ guarantees perseverance. One of the major functions of the priesthood of Christ, as we've discussed before under the study of the atonement, is that intercessory prayer is something that he offers on behalf of his people. Not only does his atoning work remain the perfect foundation for our justification, but also he makes constant intercession on our behalf, and, and, and he does this before the throne of God. We see in Scripture that the intercession of Christ is perfect and pleasing and is thus entirely efficacious. And we see that in passages like John 11.42 and Hebrews 7.25. And therefore, to say that a believer who is covered by the blood of Christ and is under the constant intercession of the Savior should fall under condemnation again is to say that, the, that, that Christ fails to be the perfect high priest that the Scripture calls him, which, uh, again, any student of Scripture should just reject outright. Next is that our mystical union with Christ guarantees perseverance. I'm also going to be brief here, but when we're united with Christ, we become one with him and are partakers and co-heirs with him in his inheritance and become partakers of his spirit. In essence, we share in the life of Christ and thus we live because he lives. To say that a part of the life of Christ could fall away and be rejected by God is position that is not maintained in scripture. So Romans 6, 9, we are told that Jesus died once and will never die again. So then if we are alive in Christ, we can never die again. Next is that at regeneration, we are given the gift of eternal life. The formulation is quite simple. We are given eternal life. If we fall away from that life, then what we were given was not eternal. 
So by the very nature of the gift, we must live eternally, and so we can never fully or finally fall from grace. Uh, theologian Eric Erickson says, uh, quote, If salvation could be lost, regeneration would have to be reversed. But can this be? Can spiritual death actually come to someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells? That is, who has already been given eternal life? This must be impossible, for eternal life is, by definition, everlasting. End quote. And he says this in his book, Systematic Theology, in the second edition, on page 1000. The next argument from inference would be that we're told that we can be assured of our salvation in this life. Now, it's clear in Scripture that Christians are capable of being assured of our salvation in Christ Jesus. I've tried to drive that, that home during this entire series. In fact, when there is less than full assurance, this is shown to be doubt, and the Christian is exhorted to overcome it with faith. We see in passages like Hebrews 3.14, 6.11, 10.22, and 2 Peter 1.10 that we can be assured of our salvation, something which would be entirely impossible if we're not capable of having assurance, if we're capable of rejecting our salvation and falling from grace. In other passages, we're told that God enables us to stand firm in the face of judgment. Romans 14.4, and that he does not give us more than we can bear and always provides our way out, 1 Corinthians 10.13, and that God guards us until the final day, 2 Timothy 2.12. So to say that we could lose our salvation and fall away or allow temptation to overcome us to such a degree that we die again in our sins just contradicts the clear commendations in Scripture. Next is that the death of Christ atones for all the sins of the elect. We saw previously that John Owen proved that Jesus died for all the sins of the elect, even the sins of unbelief that occur before and after salvation. Now, if this is the case, then even the sins that occur during backsliding would be covered by the blood of Jesus. It would be unconscionable to say that Jesus died for the sins of the elect up to salvation, but not the ones after, or not all of the ones after, maybe not, maybe not the really bad ones. Now, to hold this view would be to go back to a kind of legalistic servitude to the law by which we would be forced to maintain our sanctification. This is precisely what Paul and all the other New Testament authors repeatedly rail against, we're not only saved by grace, but we're sanctified and eventually glorified by grace as well. If we're responsible for maintaining our salvation after conversion, we are no better off than if we had been responsible to achieve it beforehand. Ultimately, the rejection of the perseverance of the saints will run into the same problem as the denial of the previous doctrines we've discussed and that is that if it is not true, then salvation is based on the will of man rather than on the grace of God. If Christ died to save us, but we can throw it away even after we receive it in the first time, then we are the ultimate arbiters of our salvation. We would then receive eternal life based on the state of our will at the second at which we die. If I fear and deny Christ in my heart, the instant of death, I would be condemned for that sin. That would mean that the cross is again only an offer of salvation and the sovereign God only bows its knee to us, which is unthinkable to anyone who wants to adhere to the clear teaching of the Bible. 
Now, we'll see that there are some objections to this formulation. It's commonly said that this doctrine can lead to licentiousness and a lifestyle that's against the gospel, where we could wonder why we shouldn't live like the Dickens once we know that Christ atoned for us because, you know, to hell with it. We're once saved, always saved. But I, I wonder if anyone who has truly been converted by grace could ever maintain that position for very long. But we'll get to that in a moment. So let's look at some of the objections to this doctrine. The first objection. There are scriptural passages that claim that we can lose our salvation. Okay. <clears throat> it's conceded that at first glance, there are several passages that seem to point to the possibility that a genuine believer may fall into such deep apostasy that they will fall from grace and lose their salvation. Examples such as the warnings in Matthew 24, 12, Colossians 1, 23, 1 John 2, 6, and several other passages in Hebrews such as, uh, excuse me, 2, 1, 3, 13, and 6, 4 through 6 are commonly passages cited in an attempt to prove that, that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. Now, before going into the details about several of these passages, a general rule of hermeneutics again, should be kept in mind throughout these passages. We, we just mentioned it before, but this is the rule or the analogy of faith uh, in which scripture is allowed and indeed must interpret scripture. The explicit must take precedent over those passages which are ambiguous or difficult to interpret. As we've seen, there are many passages in the Bible which explicitly and emphatically state that a believer cannot lose their salvation. And these passages that will that that that, that we look at now uh, have to be used to combat the idea in the ones that are much less clear. Okay, one way to answer this objection is to point out the ambiguity of the language used that is assumed to mean a loss of salvation. For example, in Matthew 24, 12, uh, that passage which speaks of the love of many that will grow cold. It's unclear that this even means salvation at all. While it's followed up in the, te in the next verse by the statement, quote, the one who endures to the end will be saved, the eschatological nature of the passage seems to suggest, or at the very least, leave open the possibility that this may refer to a physical salvation through a time of great tribulation. Um, I don't have the time to go into now, but salvation in, in the Bible, the term salvation has a huge range of meanings. So uh, anyone familiar with, with, with that type of theology will, will know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about uh, the difference between a spiritual and a physical salvation uh, at, at any given time. Um, it, it's also possible that the love which grows cold, even if it does refer to a spiritual reality, doesn't warrant the notion that it must be a loss of salvation. We can see that this is, in fact, not the case in several of the Lord's addresses to the seven churches in Revelation. We see if Ephesus uh, had forgotten its first love, 2.4, and that the Laodicean church had grown lukewarm, 3.16. And even though God warns that he will spit them out of his mouth, we should not assume that this means a loss of salvation, for this is still the bride and body of Christ, of whom we will be granted the right to sit with Christ on the Father's throne in 321. This is also true of the case in Hebrews 2.1, which warns us not to drift away from what we've heard. To claim that this drifting away should be interpreted as all-out apostasy 
would need a little bit more spade work uh, to my mind. Another example is in Colossians 1.23, where the conditional phrase, quote, if indeed you continue in the faith, end quote, is used. Now, while the Arminian would point to this and state that it proves that Paul has in mind the possibility that a Christian may lose their salvation if they do not persevere, it seems that this is not the most likely interpretation. We see in 121-22, which immediately precede this conditional, that we were once alienated and possessed a mind hostile to God, only doing evil deeds, which means that we do not possess those traits now, but rather the opposite, because we have been, quote, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, end quote. It seems that the conditional can then be interpreted two different ways without even veering into the Arminian difficulty. First, we could say that Paul may have in mind eternal rewards. For although we have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ, Paul still wishes to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before God, something that would be quite difficult to do if we, do, if we did not remain stable and steadfast. This does not seem to require us to posit a loss of salvation in the text. A separate interpretation, a se- sorry, a second interpretation is simply that Paul's conditional is actually used as a proof for the reconciliation. It's possible that Paul is not saying that we have the possibility to fail, but rather that because we do in fact remain steadfast and stable in our salvation until the end, which does not mean that we cannot have times of backsliding or doubt, but rather simply we're Christians and our entire lives to the end prove who is and who is not truly part of the elect. It seems to me that either of these interpretations better fit the context and the grammar of this verse rather than assuming too quickly that the conditional statement must mean we can lose our salvation. Burkhoff makes an excellent point in this line of reasoning as well. He, his main premise is that these warnings are urges for the Christian to remain focused on their participation in sanctification. He states that simply because there is a warning of God to remain moral, for in essence it is morally right to do what gives, give God, gives God the glory, in this case to not falter in our faith, it does not demand us to read these warnings to mean that God will revoke his calling upon us something which, as shown above, would explicitly deny scripture. Rather, Burkhoff says, quote, They do not prove that any of the believers exhorted will not persevere, but only that God uses moral means for the accomplishment of moral ends. End quote. Uh, Systematic Theology, page 549. Erickson also adds one final possibility to this. He states that even if passages such as Hebrews 6, 4-6 were stating that a believer could fall away, the combination of John 10, which we saw above, and Hebrews 6, 9 shows that they can't. So the apostasy is what is called an impossible possibility. It, it, it's logically possible, but it's impossible to ever actualize. Although the possibility of falling away is logically real, the grace of God prevents it from ever occurring. We could say that this very thing about salvation in general, while it's logically possible that all humanity would be lost because of sin, God, by his grace, chose some to be saved and thus made the possibility that none would be saved impossible. We should think of this as God making this impossible by removing the option for us. Rather, 
God effectively, quote, uses every possible means of grace, including the warning contained in Scripture, to motivate us to remain committed to him, end quote. Erickson's Systematic Theology, page 1005. Now, another objection is that there are scriptural passages that give examples of people who have apostatized. A common answer to this objection is that many of the passages are unclear on who the subject is uh, who is falling from grace. The Hebrews passages in specific are notoriously difficult for this. It's unclear on whether this is even talking about a believer or if, you, if it's used in the common form of an argument where it assumes the premise of an opponent and then follows a kind of reductio ad absurdum to its logical absurd end to prove it false. So Hebrews 6.4 is probably an example of this form of argumentation as well as 2 Peter 2.1 and 2.19-22. In these passages, and in Hebrews 6, it seems that the author is assuming the premise of his opponent, that they're, in fact, Christians, and then showing the absurdity that would follow about from the combination of their supposed profession and their lifestyle. His point is that this person who professes to be a Christian, if he falls away, cannot be restored to repentance. Rather than being a statement about if a true believer could fall away, this is much more likely an indictment on false believers who want all the benefits of the church life without the cross. This is abundantly clear if we understand that the invisible church, the true church as God sees it, is not the same as the visible church, but is contained within the visible church, which are those who profess to believe. This is the point of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24-30. This is also clearly seen in the life of Israel, where not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9.6. We can also see that the subject is most likely not true believers, because in verse 9, the author states his, his contrast with those and them to you and your. In fact, he explicitly says, quote, Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The author obviously considers his readers to not be of the same group as those who, quote-unquote, lost their salvation. We can see in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that the family of Lazarus would not believe even if someone rose from the dead to warn them if they did not already believe in the writings of Moses and the prophets, Luke 16, 29-31. The brothers of Lazarus were unbelievers, regardless of what the message was. This seems to be the point also made here in Hebrews. The abundance of qualifications, rather than showing that these men were believers, are used to show that they have been involved in a true and thriving church and yet still do not believe. If they did not believe the gospel, even though they were immersed in the true teaching of the church, they will never find salvation, so to speak. This seems to be the emphasis on the fact that they cannot be restored to repentance, though they may have had an outward repentance, they cannot be brought to an inward one because there's nowhere else for them to go but the church. If they were in the church, if they were in the area of repentance, if they were sitting under the preached word, if they were receiving the, 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 the um, sacraments of grace, then where else would they go to receive the means of grace? 
In other cases, such as Timothy 1, 19 to 20, 2 Timothy 2, 17 to 18, and 4, 10, and then 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2, as well as the Hebrews passages above, as we've shown, may list people by name who have fallen away, but in all the cases, it's not clear that these people were ever true believers. It seems most probable that rather than being used as warnings to true believers to guard their souls from falling away, they're used as warnings for true believers to watch out for those who sneak into the church through false professions. That really seems to be the major impetus of these warnings. In fact, this is explicitly taught in 1 John 2.19, where the false teachers are proved as such by the very fact that they do fall away. Quote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. End quote. For John, and most likely all these biblical authors, even if they assume the profession of their opponents simply to prove them false— it's the fact that they have fallen away from the faith that proves they never really possessed it. Now, one of the final passages should be addressed in brief. 2 Peter 1.10 states, quote, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. End quote. This passage is commonly used to show that we must put effort in to keep our calling and our election. Yet this really twists the meaning, and in fact the very wording of the passage. We're not told to be diligent in ke- to keep our calling and election effective, but to make ourselves sure of them. In other words, we're to work in cooperation with the Spirit to live a life where we can be absolutely assured of our election because we see the outcome of it in our present lives. This is indeed in line with the context of the passage, which just previously stated, quote, For if these, thing, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1, 8, verses 1-8. And then is immediately followed by saying, quote, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verses 110b through 11. Now, because we know that we're not saved by our works, the connection between these two verses cannot be that we cause or affect or keep our election. Our effectiveness for Christ cannot be the cause of our entrance into heaven. Yet it can be that of the condition of our entrance. We can enter more richly into heaven in regards to the severity of our judgment in regard and uh, with regards to our eternal rewards. Now, to what degree these will vary and indeed the very nature of eternal rewards is highly debated anyways. But here we shouldn't see this as a statement about a believer finally falling from grace unless he keeps his election. We may also ask what effect we could have on our election since election took place in the eternal decrees of God before creation. So it seems strange to say that we're able to affect what has been decreed from eternity past. Rather, what we can we can affect is our assurance of it. That is, this is a question of epistemology, not of ontology. Another objection is that to hold this doctrine leads to immorality within the church. 
this is really a poor argument against the doctrine of, perse- of, of the perseverance of the saints. While the Bible does tell us that God perseveres us and causes us to persevere so that his sovereignty and election is upheld, it also asserts that we persevere precisely through our faith and our obedience. The idea that God would cause us to persevere regardless of our lifestyle is really absurd. And as shown before, it's not likely that a true believer could hold this to be true for very long, if at all. Burkhoff points out the absurdity that the doctrine which states that God causes us to persevere in righteousness could be used to validate sin. It would be like trying to use a flashlight to find a pitch black corner of a cave. The instant the light is used, the object it is seeking is abolished. To persevere in holiness destroys any chance of seeking out sin. Burkhoff says, quote, It would seem that the certainty of the success in the active striving for sanctification would be the best possible stimulus to ever greater exertion. In fact, we again know that we are holding to the doctrines of Paul, which he taught, because this is the very objection that he received in Romans 6, 1. Uh, we should respond to, 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 to uh, him by saying that rather than our salvation being a springboard to sin, it should be a springboard to love and good works. We know that salvation brings the fruit of the Spirit and not the wages of sin, Ephesians 5. So again, like in the previous doctrines, the person who argues against the perseverance of saints by basically making the exact argument posed to Paul's teaching of the gospel is probably on pretty shaky ground. Now, the final objection I know is a little bit more anecdotal. It's people who say, I know a person who rejected the faith that they held for so long. Well, This again is actually rather simple to answer, but might not be that popular. We don't like telling people that their personal experiences were invalid. Yet in this case, the Bible is very clear that those who deny the faith never had the faith. As we saw above, the parable of the wheat and the tares shows that there is a mixing in the visible church of true believers and those that make false professions, and that in 1 John 2, he shows us that we can sometimes know who a tare is when they fall away this side of heaven. Now, although we should also take heed of Jesus' words to those who come to him saying, Lord, Lord, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. We see that Jesus does not say, I knew you once, but you turned your back and now I reject you. He says, I never knew you. They had never been truly regenerated. They weren't one of his sheep. So they are not believers who have fallen from grace, but were never believers in the first place. And by believers, I should say, it's not that they didn't cognitively believe I should say they weren't true believers. They weren't part of the elect. They weren't uh, a person who had been regenerated uh, by faith. As a side point, I, I commonly talk about this in apologetics when talking to atheists. Atheists will say, well, they'll, they'll hate when you say, well, you weren't a true Christian because they'll say, well, no, I was, I was really sincere. Well, okay, you might have been really sincere, but uh, you, you, you agree that there's no such thing as a God, right? And, well, yeah. So you didn't actually have a real relationship with a real God. Right. 
So you were delusional or mistaken or whatever. You didn't have a real relationship. Right. Exactly. So we agree. You didn't have a relationship with God before. Uh, so, so you know, again, we don't like telling people that their experiences weren't valid. But in this case, from Jesus' own mouth, he never knew them. Some final thoughts. The Apostle Paul. Let's just repeat what he said in Romans 8, 38 to 39. When he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lorraine Boatner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, page 182, writes, quote, If God has chosen men absolutely and unconditionally to eternal life, and if his spirit effectively applies to them the benefits of redemption, the inescapable conclusion is that these persons shall be saved. We see in the canons of the Council of Orange in 529 AD. And by the way, I, I use these, the, the, these count, the Council of Orange, uh, Basically, because there are, you know, I'm not appealing to tradition, but they're helpful when people say, oh, well, Calvin and Calvin invented these doctrines. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, Canon 9 of the Council of Orange says, Concerning the succor of God, it is a mark of divine favor when we are of the right purpose and keep our feet from hypocrisy and unrighteousness. For as often as we do good, God is at work in us and with us in order that we may do so. Canon 10, concerning the succor of God. The succor of God is to be ever sought by the regenerate and converted also, so that they may be able to come to a successful end or persevere in good works. Canon 18, the grace is not preceded by merit. Recompense is due to good works if they are performed, but grace, to which we have no claim, precedes them to enable them to be done. Canon 19, that a man can be saved only when God shows mercy. Human nature, even though it remained in that sound state in which it was created, could by no means save itself without the assistance of the Creator. Hence, since man cannot safeguard his salvation without the grace of God, which is a gift, how will he be able to restore what he has lost without the grace of God? Finally, there are the canons of the Council of Dort. This is the fifth main point of doctrine. Article 8, the certainty of this perseverance. So it is not by their own merits or their strengths, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this is not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen since his plan cannot be changed. His promise cannot fail. The calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ as well as his interceding and persevering cannot be nulled. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. Article 9, the assurance of this preservation Concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the preservation of true believers in faith, believers themselves can and, can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Article 10, the ground of this assurance. 
Accordingly, this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word, but from faith in the promises of God, which he has very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs, Romans 8, 16 and 17, and finally from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And if God's chosen ones in this world did not have the well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be of all people most miserable. Article 13, Assurance, No Inducement to Carelessness. This one addresses that objection. Neither does the renewed confidence of preservation produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness in those put back on their feet after a fall but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord which he prepared in advance. They observe these ways in order that by walking in them, they maintain the assurance of their preservation, lest by their abuse of his fatherly goodness, the grace of the gracious God, for the godly looking upon his face is sweeter than life, but its withdrawal is more bitter than death. Turn away from them again, with the result that they fall into greater anguish of spirit. Article 14, God's use of means in perseverance. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so he preserves, continues, and completes his work by hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. So that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We're now coming to a close on this uh, study of the doctrines of grace. And for many of you, this has been an interesting divergence into systematic theology. For some of you, this has been uh, an, an unwanted uh, divergence into systematic theology, away from some of the issues that we deal with in apologetics and philosophy and such like that. And, and so you may be wondering, uh, why did we go through this? Well, remember, the, the, when we started this, I said that this is going to have some important cash value when we come to questions dealing with uh, the problem of evil and the will and things like that. So next episode, I'm going to tie this all up in a neat little bow for us. I'm going to look at, well, what was the point of all this? Now that we understand the Calvinistic understanding of the Christian faith, of the, of the Bible, of what it talks about salvation, what does that say about some of these objections that we're dealing with in the larger section uh, of, of um, Bible atrocities, which we're really going through. So we'll look at that next time. Uh, we'll look at the problem of pain uh, shortly in some of those other answers. So again, thank you for joining me on this episode. Uh, if, as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to contact us at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit us on the Facebook group. Thank you again for joining us. Good night and God bless. Thank you.